Want to learn what sets LiveFlow apart from thousands of other QuickBooks Online apps? Do you want to learn how LiveFlow saves time for hundreds of accountants and bookkeepers? Want to learn how LiveFlow helps accountants and bookkeepers to use LiveFlow successfully in their firm? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LiveFlow, later in the episode. So we've seen this actually with like the big firms. They are generally not requiring people to go back to the office. Like PwC is not requiring it. I don't think any of them are really going to do it because it just makes so much sense. And, and when you have a lot of the work being done from client spaces anyway, not really necessary. So coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. And we are coming to you live from the OnPay Recording Studio via LinkedIn Live, via Riverside. It's our second live stream. I think it went okay last week, but I think now we're being really yeah. aggressive. We're like, let's add these chats and this chat and like, you know, it throws your game off a little bit. Um, but it, but I've had to improve my game though. Like now that we're putting this yeah. live out, I have to take showers before we go, I have to shave. Like I have to prepare a little bit differently than it's just audio, a little bit. See, I I didn't do any of that. I I I exercise. I have not showered. I have not shaved. And this is the beauty of remote work. And I've got stories about remote work in this episode, so I think it's appropriate. I love just being able to come to my job, which is crazy enough being a podcaster, just sit in my office, which is a second bedroom, and uh, yeah, do this. Um, thanks you to everybody who has joined us for our live stream. Please let us know your thoughts about anything that we are discussing. We have invited one of our listeners to join us live on the show. We will try that. It might work. It might not. So Tyler, if you are there, feel free to call in on Riverside at any point or chat with us to let us know uh, and we'll get you on the show because we want to get your feedback. All right, David. What's top of mind for you this week? I'll start out with, did you see the Patagonia? The founder is giving away the company. So this is like the, the backpack company, right? In boots. Those kind of, oh, well, yeah. I'm thinking Land's I End mean, is the boots. Patagonia yeah, is the, the um Well, I mean, but also like the venture capitalist starter kit company, right? Everybody wears those Patagonia vests. In oh, San yes, Francisco. yes, the vest as well. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I've never owned a Patagonia vest uh, I can proudly say that. Well, if you're in Northern yeah. California, so that's the problem. It's it, you know, if you're in, that's where a lot of the startups are at. Bay Area, it's a little chillier. You know, average you know, you're oh, pushing yeah. sixty degree days. You kind of need that vest. But yes, I, but I would you know, people send those vests to me in Arizona, and I'm like, I can't wear this ever. <laughs> well, you can wear it for like one month, yeah. right? In uh, February, in December, or something. January, yeah. Uh, don't go outside uh, well, in it. But anyway, yeah. So I saw that to story. story too. Yeah. So. Uh, $3 billion company, Patagonia, great company, great products. And the the founder is giving the company away for charity. Well, and political purposes, actually, we should say. Yeah. And so it, it's funny because if people only see the headlines of this, go by on Twitter, it's like, oh, he's giving away the company to charity. But it's really, he's helping his family save hundreds of millions of dollars. His, his heirs are... are avoiding uh, estate and gift tax, which is like 40%, right? So some of it's that. Ray Madoff, he's a professor at Boston College Law School. He kind of brought up two points of view on this. And one is like, this is we're letting kind of rich people get out of their job, which is 
supporting the government to run, right? Like we're letting them not right, right. pay money to the government well, by doing this. And and that's what got my attention about this whole thing is that by doing this, by donating the entire company to this, uh, what is it called? It's a 501c4. It's called Holdfast. Okay. it's called That's the name of it. So yeah. it's a 501c4 organization which can make political donations, unlimited political donations. And if you transfer your assets to these organizations, you can't take a deduction from your income tax, but you can avoid estate and gift taxes. And in the case of billionaires, that 40, that's 40%. So this is the same strategy that was used by a Republican, a Republican billionaire, uh, Bear Side, uh, donated a $1.6 billion company to a conservative political action group. So this raises some interesting questions about, like, do we really want this as a matter of policy, that the way that you can escape estate taxes as a billionaire is to give your company to a political action committee? So we've got on one side, we've got a Republican $1.6 billion donation. On this side, we've got Patagonia going for, you know, obviously, I think the liberal environmentalist uh, side of things. And that's a lot of money. A lot of money going to be entering politics. So it's, uh, there's an amazing quote though that that uh, this professor said, which I thought was kind of interesting. If you start thinking about it this way, um, so this is again that Ray Madoff professor at Boston College Law School. I'm just going to read the actual quote. If someone wanted to leave their votes behind after they die, we do not let people do that. But through these organizations, they're doing something similar, and that their money is much more powerful than a single vote. Hey, so Tyler is here. He is in Riverside right now, and he is dialing in. We're going to take our first ever call-in to the show after, what is this episode? This is episode 297. Yeah. We're taking our first call-in. We're turning into a real real radio show, real live stream show. All right, Tyler, I'm going to press this green check mark. Let's see what happens. Hey, guys. You hear me? Hey, Tyler. <laughs> Welcome. Work. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you guys? Ah, we're, we're, we're doing great. Great to have you here. Um, so to what do we owe the pleasure of your company today, Tyler? <laughs> I think uh, likewise to be the first person to ever call on. Uh, hopefully it goes well. Hopefully I don't upset and set a good standard here. Well, Tyler sent sure an email, right? In response yes. to the whole culture that's happening at big firms. So you, you sent an email to us uh, after episode 294. It was in response to this this concept of offshoring and whether that is hurting or, well, in the case of the uh, letter writer, it was you know hurting the learning experience of associates at big firms. And you had a different perspective. Tell us a little bit about you know your background, what kind of work you're doing, uh, whatever you want to share in that regard. And then I'd love to hear your opinion on, on this uh, on this topic. Yeah, for sure. So first off, I am little over a year into my first year with the big four. I am not a regular core audit. I'm an IT auditor. Um, so there's probably a little bit of differences, but with my experience, you know, right after a year or so into this, a lot of what I do my day to day now is go to the client and I get you know, the evidence that we need, what we're looking for, make sure it is what we need, which a lot of times it's not. So that's where a lot of the work is done. Um, 
And then from there, in terms of filling out like our testing tables within our work papers and all of that, we actually shipped that off to one of our offshore teams in India. Um, I know this at the firm I'm at, this has been a push for a couple of years now, but I think now, um, I don't know if it's shortages of new associates or what, but there's definitely a huge push not to just push the work off to these offshore teams, but to try to treat them as team members themselves. Um, so not as like a separate entity, but kind of move together as one throughout the audit. So I know with that, some people might think, well, you know, you learn by filling out the testing tables and doing the evidence and all that. Um, but with my experience, you know, a lot of the testing tables and all that is hours spent formatting and plugging and chugging attributes and numbers. So for me personally, I'm still learning a lot by getting the evidence that we need and making sure it's what we need versus spending hours of in Excel templates, just formatting and filling in attributes such as like, who, who approved this user new access and stuff like that. So that's been my experience. Awesome. So overall then positive, you like not having to do all that manual work yourself. Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, it frees up time for me to actually like ask questions and really think about, all right, the client's doing this. Is there a better way to do this as well? Um, and try, kind of, you know, have that time, that extra time to voice that to managers and above. Whereas I could see, you know, the typical workload of just filling out, you know, all these work papers, redundant, just work that you shall really wake up and get excited about. I definitely prefer this, this method. Well, that's great. So if I heard correctly, you're in your first year as an IT auditor and now it sounds like you're enjoying this. Is this something that you plan to continue in or are you looking to get a different experience next year? Like where are you headed with your career? So right now, I think the nature of auditing is probably long-term not for me. Um, I, you know, would prefer to help a client versus tell them or try to find things they're doing wrong. So in terms of long-term, I would definitely see myself, you know, being more consulting or advisory. But for right now, what it's worth, I'm learning a ton. They're giving me a ton of resources, you know, with the CPA exam and all that. So right now and going into it, it was kind of, you know, just a career booster launchpad uh, mindset. So. And are you remote? Are you in the office? Are you hybrid? What's the situation? <laughs> so I am remote. I am based in Nashville, but my client is in um, Charlotte. And so a lot of the people I work with are in Charlotte. And so we have an office here in Nashville, but I've only been in twice. And one of them was for a promotion day which was basically, you know, a day we just went into the office and celebrated uh, promotees. But I have been here since August of 2021, and I've gone to Charlotte twice. So all in all, I've had three working days in the office. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do you miss? I, well, you can't really miss the office because you, your whole career has been remote. Do you? Yeah. Do you want to go into an office or do you like the situation you have now? Like what's your ideal situation? So there's definitely pros and cons. I think, you know, like flexibility of working from home and being able to lock down when I have, 
you know, stuff to do and I can just lock in and get it done. That aspect of it is very nice. In terms of learning, it is, I think, easier going into the office. Like when I go to Charlotte, I can turn to somebody sitting next to me and be like, hey, have you seen this before? How does this work? Versus having to set up a video call or chat through ping and pinging messages back and forth. But all in all, I think I'm at a, I'm going to Charlotte now probably like once a month. I think that's a good, healthy balance of where I'm at right now because I wasn't a huge fan of traveling all over and being gone all the time. So, yeah, I, I think I agree. I'm curious, David. I'm curious to know how you feel about this. I worked remotely for a company in San Francisco, from Phoenix and LA, and I would go once a month. And I felt like if yeah. I really scheduled out my time with people, I could get a lot of value out of that one day. You know, especially yeah. the after-hour stuff, right? Going out having some drinks, talking to people, get to know them better. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, well, like, I mean, I was doing remote work for the last 12 to 15 years, probably uh, always remote. And, but yeah, then you get on, it, it ebbs and flows, right? You'll get into a cadence where, Hey, I'm headed up there every three weeks and you have, you, you're there for 48 hours. You knock out meetings, you have a dinner, you have drinks, fly home. But it's, it also, like, you fall out of that cadence and that, geez, I haven't made it there in six months because for whatever reason, right, especially when you have more client-facing stuff, you might be fine to the client, which is like, well, why go to the home office, right? And it's a little tricky. Yeah. It's tricky to balance. But I think when you get into a cadence and a rhythm, it's great. It's really great. Well, Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for listening. Absolutely. It worked. Yeah. It didn't crash or explode. You guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. First time. That's wow. That's I'm actually honored. That's awesome. I appreciate you guys having me on. And David, oh Tyler, do you have a Cloud Accounting Podcast T-shirt? I do not. I okay. would. I would love yeah. one though. Can we make that happen, David? Yeah, we can make that happen. Send me uh, on LinkedIn. Send me your address, and we'll make this happen. Okay. All right. Thanks, Tyler. Awesome. Yeah, appreciate you guys. Thank you. That was awesome. So great. I love hearing from our listeners, especially people who are actually out in the field doing the work. Not just us, David, rambling on. <laughs> who, you know, we we we, don't we do read about work. this. We don't do any. We don't do any any work. Uh, well, you know, this is. It's hard for me to feel like this is work because I enjoy it so much. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Lightflow. Have you ever exported a QuickBooks online report to a Google Sheet, spent time customizing the sheet, invited others to collaborate, then discovered the QuickBooks data has changed, forcing you to restart the entire process over again? An app has solved this problem, LiveFlow. LiveFlow connects QuickBooks Online directly to Google Sheets in Excel, allowing you to have spreadsheets that automatically update with the most recent QuickBooks data. Thousands of accountants and bookkeepers and finance teams are using LiveFlow today to create automatically updating budget versus actuals, dashboards, and consolidated reports. Yes, consolidated reports. You can connect one spreadsheet to multiple QuickBooks online companies to see the numbers updated in real time. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash LiveFlow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. You said you had other remote work stories though this week? Yeah, and I think this would be a perfect transition to that. So I wanted to talk about this last week. We didn't get to it. I want to talk about remote work and this trend called quiet quitting. Have you heard quiet quitting, David? It's been 
like a trending topic in the news. Yeah, it's, it's gotten a little m- mainstream. But but we yeah. were talking, referencing this loosely a year ago, talking about how like this concept of, you remember how those people had two jobs? Remember they were like, yeah, I'll just get two remote jobs. And the other job yeah. doesn't know I'm doing this work. That's kind of quietly quitting, right? Like you're kind of not really working very hard. So it's just, it, it has a term now, right? Right. Yeah, I guess I suppose that was like sort of the, uh, uh, but but you're not really quiet quitting if you're doing two jobs at once for two different companies, because you're actually working really hard <laughs> trying well, to Well, a lot of those, it's like you didn't work hard. You're like doing just right. just enough to fly under the radar at this company so you can moonlight at another company and a third company. But a lot of it is that concept of if you've never actually been in the office, like, do you actually really work there? And at the same yeah. vein, the other side, the employer is like, it's easier to th- fire you. We get rid of you. But I'll let you continue with your story here. Well, you know, so so uh, quiet quitting, the definition of quiet quitting uh, is, and I have one here. It's on Wikipedia now, by the way. It has its own Wikipedia entry, so we know <laughs> it's, it's a real thing. Uh, Seth says, quiet quitting equals the old slowdown. And to me, without further information, that means you, you, you do your job, but you don't go above and beyond. You just do it at the minimum pace. You're doing the minimum job that you need to do. And on Wikipedia, the the definition is quiet quitting is an application of work to rule in which employees work within defined work hours and engage solely in activities within those hours. The philosophy of quiet quitting, despite the name, is not necessarily connected to quitting a job outright, but rather doing exactly what the job requires and nothing more. I added the end, nothing more part. So this would mean like you take Slack and email off your phone. So. Yeah. You're not working on a weekend or you're not responding to an email outside of hours and Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's there's been a bunch of uh, quiet quitting stories in the news. Gallup did a poll and this was reported in the Wall Street Journal. The headline is Quiet Quitters Make Up Half the US Workforce. The number of workers who say they are actively <laughs> Wait, disengaged. Can you repeat this? Quiet quitters make up half the US workforce. Uh, now, is that a shock to you, David? I, I can't. I mean, it, it's a shocking headline to frame it that way. But I feel like if I go back and look at my working career, then that arguably, yeah, that makes sense because a lot of people just they put a C level effort in, and you get a paycheck, you put in your forty, and don't go above and beyond. And there's a lot of employees that have been like that forever. So, it, yeah, it, it, it just has this fancy new new term now. But I think it's right. just called being an average employee. It's not. It's nothing new, and and in the past we've just called this engagement or disengagement, yep. and really for a long time, a significant percentage of the workforce has been actively disengaged or passively disengaged. Um, very few workers, less than half of workers, are ever you know actively engaged. Like they're really go getters, and I think you know this, right? If you own an accounting firm, for instance, you have maybe a few of those go-getters who are like, yes, give me everything. I want to be partner someday. I'm, you know, I'm that kind of person. And then you have the people who are just there, you know, doing the job, doing the minimum, right? It's hard to motivate them, right? Like, this is nothing new. They've always existed. But the number has sort of increased. And I think that's the takeaway from these polls. Nearly one third of workers describe themselves as engaged or enthused about work. So a third while just under 20% describe themselves as actively disengaged. This is from a June survey of 15,000 U.S. workers by Gallup. The rest, so the other 50% or so, are not engaged. Those are the people who do the minimum required and are psychologically detached from their jobs. 
So that's kind of crazy. Like, I think only about 20% are actively disengaged, but then like a huge chunk, like almost half are just sort of like passive, like not I mean, engaged. I believe that. What's the 80-20 rule, right? I believe 20% yeah. of the employees do all the work for the whole company. <laughs> like, and, like in general, at most companies, I totally yeah. believe that. But what's interesting, I think, with remote work and why maybe there's an increase in this, if you think about like all-stars, if all-stars were working in a company that was all in person, when that all-stars kind of burned out or done with it, they just kind of, they have to leave because nobody's just going to let them walk around doing nothing. But with remote right. work, now there's this opportunity to be like, all right, I'll just kind of disengage. I'll still take a paycheck, but I can be disengaged and I can spin up something else until that, that has legs. And I think that, mm-hmm. that was a lot harder to do pre-technology of remote working. I think remote working yeah, that's true. Enabled, enabled the all-stars to pull the same move. Yeah. Now, here what's, here's what's interesting about this survey. So back in 2020, in the summer of 2020, the engagement levels for this same survey, they hit their highest level, level ever at 40%. So we had really strong engagement in 2020, summer 2020, and now it's dropped a lot. And so one of the questions is, is the reason it's gone from 40%, you know, down back to like a third, and we've lost like a 10% of those, you know, people who they went from being engaged to not, you know, to now being passive or actively disengaged. Like, why did that happen? And so one of the theories is that a lot of companies are calling people back to work. So it's actually the, like, one theory is it's the opposite of what you said, David. It's that people became more engaged when they went remote. Because now they're not, and my theory is they're not dealing with all the BS of the office. And they get to just do their job. You know? I think maybe, but also that was like when remote working was kind of brand new. People were just starting it. And right. it, it kind of can suck after a while. After that was, That's when people were just starting to take Zoom calls. Then after 24 months of Zoom calls, eight hours okay. a day, your attitudes kind of change a little bit. And plus, I think that was the beginning. Like, the pandemic was just kind of becoming a machine to some extent. The, the yeah. stimulus money was getting out there. And companies were just trying – people were just thankful they had jobs for a little while. And it needed a distraction, right? Yeah. I, I don't necessarily yeah. think remote – asking them to come back to the office is making them disengaged. I don't know. I, I – We'll find out. Listeners can let me know on Twitter if they think that's true. If you work for a firm, yeah, we'll see. the firm's making you go back to the office, if that's making you want to work less hard. Now, here's another story about remote work that caught my attention. This was in Inc.com. Remote workers are wasting more than an hour a day on productivity theater, a new report finds. That's another new term love for me. That. Productivity. Love that. Love it. <laughs> so, so it sound, David, it sounds like you're familiar with productivity theater. How would you describe it? Well, that's these, you know, oh, write me up a weekly, you know, summary of everything you did for the week or like a lot of times daily stand-ups or stand meetings about what we're going to have a meeting about and the uh what are the what are the metrics we're going to build this project on and there's slide decks and slide decks. I mean, like big companies are very good at this. Like yeah. It's so 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 this is from a survey of 2000 knowledge workers in the US and the UK. So it's finding that Here's an example, productivity theater. Remote workers joining Zoom meetings know they will be worthless. Responding to emails at strategically selected hours or other forms of being ostentatiously online to convince colleagues that they're working long and hard enough. This kind of digital presenteeism eats up a full 67 minutes of the average remote worker's day, the researcher found. That is a lot of time wasted on productivity theater. So yeah, it's like looking, looking busy was something that we did in the office. We'd just walk around, look like you're going places fast, right? 
like whenever the partner comes out of their office, like look like you're fur- furiously typing, right? <laughs> that it it hasn't gone away in the remote work environment. It still exists. It's just different now. It's you know buying that program that moves your mouse cursor so that you look like you're active until 11 p.m. at night on Microsoft Teams. Scheduling your emails to go out at scheduling your emails 6 a.m. Monday yeah. morning. So it looks like, wow, yeah. you got up early. In the meantime, you're really just sleeping. So, you know, it really is one of those stories where it's, uh, you know, there's nothing new. It's just the same thing, people pretending to be busy. But I want to talk about why are they pretending to be busy? And I think it's because we still, even in a remote work environment, don't have good ways of measuring people's productivity other than inputs. And this is especially true in accounting. We love to measure people's timesheets, the time they are putting into their work. But we really struggle to measure their outputs Outputs. and what they're doing. So people, because of that, will do this productivity theater where they will pretend to be busy. And I myself was guilty of it. Here's an example of how I used to do this when I worked at the large firm. I had a client that was in downtown LA. I lived in Encino, which was between 30 minutes and an hour and a half away, depending on the traffic. And this client really enjoyed when I came into the office. And so if I needed time on my timesheet, I would say, oh, you know what, this week, I'm going to go into the office. And all that travel time to get there and the parking and all that stuff, I got to put on my timesheet. So literally, even if I had no reason to be there uh, to, to pad my hours, right? I would go, and now it served a purpose. It wasn't really padding hours because it actually made the client happier, right? But it wasn't product. It wasn't productive. It didn't make anything really that much better, like marginal, marginal improvement, right? I could have spent that time doing other stuff, but the way I was tracked was with inputs, right? So that's what I would do. And that to me is a, t- a type of productivity theater, traveling around to look busy or going to a lot of meetings. Yeah, I think I saw this in my career with quality assurance. Right, where people, you'd have a, and this is when you, there wasn't a lot of automated testing. You're running lots of tests manually. All the tests would just be in Excel spreadsheets and you'd just be hammering out tests, right? And there'd always be people on the team that, like, they get their tests done first. They're done. They ran the most tests and they find no bugs. And managers would convince them, like, well, that, that, that feature must be really solid. Look at that. Like, you're finding bugs. And it's like, it's the opposite, right? It, it, it gives this illusion of quality. Because they got, but it's really, the reality is, is the person that's done first is probably has the most bugs. They just didn't see them. (laughs) They just went too fast. Mm -hmm. And that's that theater of like, it gave management the numbers they wanted. And I think that's what ultimately probably drives this theater, right? Is you have managers that value the wrong things. Exactly. And unfortunately, there was an article in the Journal of Accountancy called Tips for Managing Remote Workers. And I got to call out one of these tips, which is sort of at the end of the article. (laughs) So right at the end of it, it says, Jessica Robinson, CPA, director of a senior tax at DMJPSP LLC. Wow, that's a lot of letters. She suggested having employees keep records of their time on their own to ensure they stay on task when working remotely. And that doesn't do it, right? That's yeah. not what we're talking about. And one of our listeners in the chat said, I can see productivity in my Keeper app and the work is done the employees can go on with their day away from the computer. And that's what these modern practice management solutions like Keeper and Jetpack and Client Hub and Carbon are doing is they're actually giving you a way to measure the deliverable to the client and the completion of that deliverable, not just timesheets. That doesn't matter. The client doesn't care about timesheets. 
They care about the work getting done and when it gets done and if it's done on time, right? And that's what should that's what we should be me- measuring. So. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. Think about this. If you have approximately 60 clients and create five reports a month for each of them, that's over 3,500 reports a year. And let's say you're really fast and only takes you one minute per report. That's almost 2.5 days a year you spend creating reports. Here are a few of the ways LiveFlow saves time for so many accountants and bookkeepers. Once you create the perfect suite of reports for a client, you can just copy the Google Sheet, use LiveFlow to connect it to a different client's QuickBooks Online company, and you're all done. The new reports will pull in the data for the second client automatically. You can easily drill down on the details of each number on a LiveFlow report, including drilling down to the transaction level to navigate directly to the transaction inside of QuickBooks Online. No more opening QuickBooks Online to search for specific transactions. LiveFlow and Google Sheets are in the cloud, so you don't have to waste time emailing files between your team and your clients. And you can give your clients access to a suite of reports that they can access anytime, eliminating one-off requests for you and your staff. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash LiveFlow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Stop manually updating your spreadsheets with LiveFlow. You got any remote work stories that you've followed recently? I mean, David? I saw. I, could... I didn't. I, I didn't really read this, but I saw the, and it's in Going Concern, so people could try to find it. But it says uh, the title of the article is "The AICPA has written a strongly worded letter to the Treasury Department on remote work." Oh, so wow! It's that typical, okay. like, "Hey, we're going to write a letter," and yeah. so basically, it's uh, they wanted the requesting to some extent updated guidance on um employees and remote work situations on um, non-travel expenses that you might incur, right? So I didn't really read the whole article, but it exists, and that's the closest I had to a remote work article this week. I couldn't I couldn't get into it to bring it to the show, arguably. It's just it's there on the cutting room floor. So <laughs> uh, That's all right. I didn't read that one either because, again, a lot of these suggestions don't have specific uh, measurements associated with them. So, like, what's the point? If you're just telling – was you know, to focus on these areas, but right, not actually but not like, like it should actually be this. making a recommendation. It's like pointless. Right. Here's one from listener Ray. Uh, he sent me this article from the Census Bureau. There is data now on the number of people working remotely or working primarily from home. Get this: the number of people working primarily from home tripled between 2019 and 2021. It tripled, so it went from. very small numbers, 5.7% of people working primarily at home up to, that was was 9 million people, up to almost 18%, 27.6 million people. So let's round those numbers, right? From 6% to 18%. Huge change. And I don't know if that's going to like go back down all that much. In some states like Washington, Maryland, in Colorado and Massachusetts, it's 24% of workers are now working primarily from home. And that's across every job. So yep. there's a lot of jobs that can't be done at all from home, right? And so that means that of the jobs that can be done from home, even more are being done from home. And uh, Ray had an interesting insight in his email to me. He said, you know, we have to also consider in terms of benefits of working from home, the the benefit of reduced commuting times for those who still have to go to the office because the average one-way travel time to work has dropped 
uh, from 2021. It used to be rounding up 28 minutes, and now it's down to like 26 minutes. So there's so less cars on the road, less people. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, now that's over the whole country, right? But you can imagine in a metro, that would be an even more dramatic change because metro areas are more likely to have workers coming from home. Or, or, or like, even if it, uh, it distributes maybe that longer time frame. So instead of everybody trying to get to the office at the same time at 9 a.m., you people are like, hey, I'm going to work from home in the morning. I'll go in the afternoon. Like it's really yeah. d- uh, changing the distribution of when people are on the roads. And, and that has environmental benefits, right? Huge change with people not driving to work. Like it's really good for our cities, for our air quality. Uh, it reduces our uh, usage of fuel, which lowers costs for everybody else. Like there's all it's these almost the worst driving because you're barely benefits. driving. You're sitting in traffic, right? <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's the worst, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, so we've seen this actually with like the big firms. They are generally not requiring people to go back to the back to the office. Like PwC is not requiring it. Um, I don't I don't think any of them are really going to do it because it just makes so much sense. And and when you have a lot of the work being done from client spaces anyway, right? Not really necessary. So I guess the only other story I have to get off my plate here is this one, sort of the the big brother side, the dark side of remote work, which is tracking employees. So using electronic monitoring technology, David, have you ever been tracked electronically, like on your computer? No, this is why I only use my PC and I do not accept a company PC when they give you one, when you get hired at a company. I never take and you were able PC. to you were able to avoid that at Intuit? Well, I would just format the Intuit machine and put my own image on. <laughs> oh, and, and you were able to get around all that stuff? Yeah. All right. You just, well, just don't get a virus and don't crash the network and nobody knows. It's simple. <laughs> well, so here's some information on the prevalence of electronic monitoring technology. And by that, I'm talking about a whole range of things, all the way from measuring whether or not you are present at your computer, like whether or not you're moving your mouse, uh, to taking screenshots or even pictures of you with the camera on the computer. This is all possible with technology. And I know a firm owner who uses this kind of tech. I know that there are some who do. There are many who don't. To me, I find it kind of creepy. Roughly 30% of large employers use some form of employee monitoring. And now um, that was before the pandemic. 30% before the pandemic were using it. Now it's up to 60% of large employers are using at least one form of employee monitoring. Which is kind of weird. It's like, would you let your employees of your company come into your bedroom? Probably not. But you bring your computer in there and they are like, it's, it's a little, it, it, yeah. And this is this, like, if people maybe understood really what working from home means or working remotely, maybe their attitudes would change a little bit knowing this is going on. Um, it's interesting. Well, I saw some timesheet apps that do this. It's like a timesheet app. So then, you know, maybe we have remote workers in the Philippines, I don't know, doing something. The timesheet app, they have to clock in and out on the timesheet app so we can watch what they're doing. And we can actually drill down like, oh, they said they were doing this for an hour. We can drill down. It has a screen recording of what they did for that hour. And if they weren't yeah, doing yeah. what they said they were doing, I could see that. And it's a, it's crazy, but it's, it's, it's a timesheet app and populates right up to QuickBooks and Zero and the whole thing. Right. Now, I, I don't like that. Like, I find that would be creepy. And although there's like, it's tempting to me as an employer to want to do that. Like, I, I also feel like it, it, it's tracking the wrong thing. Like, why do I care about... Like, unless this is for a security reason, right? Why do I care to watch how my employee is getting the work done if they're getting the work done, right? It would be like standing at their desk and looking over their shoulder while they work. I feel like 
that would have a negative impact as well on their work. Yeah. Somebody said something. Marissa. Marissa Stillwell. Yeah, you go ahead. Why hire someone if you don't trust them? That's a really good point. It is a really good question. But how do you know? How yeah. do you know if you trust them or not until you watch them for three months? <laughs> like, through their, it makes people feel camp. not trusted. That's right. And so instead, you know, measure their outputs, measure what they're doing instead of uh, what what they are, uh, you know, clicking on on their screen. Um, I've got some other stories about remote work, like how rural Americans aren't getting their high speed internet. Like, there's huge problems with the way that program has been rolled out. Unfortunately, with the federal incentives. <laughs> Still. And so like, that's a big problem, right? We've got a whole group of Americans who can't do remote work because they don't have high speed internet. And it's just a unfortunate situation. And I think the last thing I want to talk about is hybrid meetings. So the hell of hybrid meetings, you've, you've participated in some of these, right? David, that's where when people are in the conference you know, room got, and it dials into the zoom meeting and then you're on. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the worst. Right. Because you feel like you're a second class citizen. If you're not in the room, you feel like, uh, or you can't hear people if the tech is bad, right? If there's one microphone at like the front of the room, you can't hear people in the back. Or it's always like one oh. room is worse than other rooms. <laughs> like, right. You, you can be on 20 Zoom calls in a day and it's fine. And every call, then the one meeting in that one room, like it's just the worst. Right? Or you're, yeah. you're, only your audio cuts out and then you look like the crazy one, right? Like it, it's on your end. Yeah. So, I mean, this is part of the challenge with getting people to come back to the office is, if not everybody's in the office, then you have this hybrid situation and then your meetings have to be on Zoom anyway. And then it feels extra pointless to drive into the office just to sit on a bunch of Zoom meetings. So, And that happens at these bigger, you know, even like in the Intuit campus. These are big campuses, spreads 10, 15 buildings, you know, and it's a good 10 minute walk from meeting to meeting across the campus. And so then and that's what I, I would get into. I'd from traveling, you're talking, go, taking this back to traveling to the onsite, right? Yeah. And you travel there and you go to a meeting and three people that are literally in the same campus aren't, they're doing, they're taking it from their desk and doing a Zoom call in. It's like, I came all the way here to do a Zoom call with somebody I could have stayed in Tucson, right? It's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the, because it, it's really enabled people to kind of be lazy in a weird kind of way, right? Just, and be overly busy, right? Because you just scheduled the Zoom call and Zoom call, Zoom call, Zoom call, Zoom call, and there's one minute between each call. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. One thing we haven't talked about yet is how LiveFlow helps accountants and bookkeepers to use LiveFlow successfully in their firms. For starters, LiveFlow has amazing customer support. They offer instant help 24-7 from real humans via chat, or if you prefer, you can schedule a Zoom meeting, choose to call them, or even email the founders directly. LiveFlow has a library of plug-and-play templates such as consolidated P&L and flash reports to enable and scale across your clients in a snap. They also have dozens of blog posts from other LiveFlow users where they share their best practices and they even share their Google Sheets. You can just copy them and start using their best practices in your firm instantly. In my opinion, this is what really sets LiveFlow apart from thousands of other QuickBooks Online apps, this ability to build, share, and scale on each other's work. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash LiveFlow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. David, I think it's time for us to get to app news. All right, David, I monopolized the beginning of the show, so I'm going to let you start app news. The first one is about a niche app I saw. It's called Roofer, like roof, and then the letter R, you know, because it 
you can't afford to buy the domain with the, all the letters. So it's roofer, like with an R, right. yeah. R-O-F-R. They raised $12 million to advance um, their SaaS platform for roofers. Um, essentially, wow. what it does, it lets you take a photo of the roof, and then you can do your estimates right on the device, your phone, get a quote, give it to the customer. And But they're raising this money because they want to uh, – add features like payment capabilities, leader acquisition, et cetera. The funny thing about this was somebody at one of the very first QuickBooks Connect hackathons, so we're going back to like 2014 or whatever, he actually built this and he was all on his own. He was just using, he was an independent little developer and he used the uh, Google Maps and he built this app and like literally this app was built a decade ago, but sometimes timing's everything, right? The, the mm-hmm. technology just probably wasn't good enough just yet, right, to do anything like this. But it was uh, it so I saw it caught my eye and I was like, oh, that reminds me of this uh, developer that we used to have, which is great. Uh, so far, they've already measured 1.5 million roofs. Wow, it's amazing how niche everything's getting now in terms of business management software. Like literally, every single profession or job is going to have its own solution. And then it's, it's and then if you so, so it's niche, right? But then they're starting to add like, oh, payment capabilities. Now you don't need to get Square, right? You got a payment app built into the thing. Oh, you don't need a CRM mm. because it does lead acquisition. And then it's like, oh, what's next? They add payroll. What's next? They add a GL. Like it's an interesting march we're on with these niche apps. Speaking of apps deciding to get into more than what they originally did, let's talk about Expensify getting into payroll. Got an email from David Barrett all about, well, I'll just read the headline. Automated payroll, taxes, and filings built into your subscription. At long last, I am extremely happy to announce Expensify now offers complete payroll services built directly into your existing Expensify subscription and managed entirely via concierge at no additional cost. So here's what it includes, according to the email. Local, state, and federal tax calcs, withholding and filing, W-2 generation for employees, taxable and non-taxable benefit tracking, stock earnings processing through Expensify, ISOs, NSOs, RSUs, PTO and vacation tracking, recurring and off-cycle paychecks, direct deposit, bi-directional GL synchronization, comprehensive bank feed reconciliation, yada, yada. That's the last bullet point. And it sounds like, it's not quite clear from the email, but it sounds like Expensify is using their own payroll that they've built. So they think it will work for us. Well, it's interesting. Like, did they build it from scratch? Or are they using a service like Check or I think Payroll City? Well, Gusto bought that company, right, out of Payroll City. Yeah. Are they using a service like that and they built on top of APIs? Now, when they say it's all available via concierge, so concierge is kind of the their chat bot or whatever that's inside. That's their chat bot slash support chat, yeah. So are they? is that how you run payroll? Like pay Blake for 45 hours and it'll go to check? In the way, say, remember ADP had that product they launched, that like chat-based payroll product, that super simple payroll product? Is it kind of that's mm-hmm. the march they're on, or because I, I don't see any so UI it, or thing? Yeah. Anyway. Well, so that's what it sounds like. Um, so I replied and I said, "Sign me up," and I still haven't heard back. <laughs> so you know, I'll let you know what is included and how it works. I'm really curious to try it. It's kind of crazy that I, I don't remember when they announced that they were going to work on this. Maybe it was like a year. It was ago their or first something. earnings announcement. When they had to oh, have an earnings call with investors, yeah. Well, how long ago was that? Well, they was went that public a year, basically two a year years? ago. Yeah. Okay. So, like, that they've built this in a year, that's really fast. I mean, Gusto, OnPay, 
all these newer payroll companies, uh, Rippling, they've been working on this for years now, and Expensify is claiming to have done it that quickly. I'm not saying they couldn't. Well, that's where and, if you build um, on another platform, right? You build right. on top of somebody else's platform, right. and you're just building your UI on top of it. Um, yeah. But he said they were going to build it themselves. So, well, we'll I mean, we'll half see. these apps are built but, on Plaid and the Visa and MasterCard APIs. Like, <laughs> like right. they, they've all built it themselves, right? I mean, the vast majority of apps are built that, that way. So I, I, my thought on this, though, well, it kind of makes a lot of sense, right? Because Expensify is really a, already in the employees' pockets. They, they, they go after employees. Yeah. They get the app in the employees' pockets. It's kind of a natural place. Well, I'll just open up Expensify. If I'm already opening up Expensify to see if a reimbursement got deposited in my bank account, I could just open up Expensify to see if my paycheck's there. It's, it kind of right. makes sense from a strategy perspective, but- you and I both know payroll. It's very hard to execute massively like this. So here's what I think the biggest risk is. The biggest risk is the customer support because that's where payroll companies lose customers is when something goes wrong and you as a business owner, as an accountant, have to fix it. If you can't get the support you need to fix it, it becomes a disaster that snowballs. Because now you're not paying your payroll taxes. Now there's fees, the pot fines, penalties. Straightening that out can be a huge mess. And I, I wonder how Expensify is going to deal with the support that comes along with payroll when, you know, on LinkedIn, they have less than 200 employees. And they've always been very proud of the fact that they've got to the IPO with only, I think it was 140 employees at the time. Incredibly valuable company, you know, per, per head. You can do that with expense reports because expense reports aren't the most critical thing. Like if somebody doesn't get their reimbursement for their expense report, you know, you can do that next week and it's fine. But with payroll, if you don't get payroll done on time, if there's a glitch with that, it's a disaster. And, you know, you look at Gusto, right? Gusto has close to 2,500 employees on LinkedIn. So I, I just wonder, like, is Expensify going to ramp up? Higher support to deal with all this stuff, or because if they don't, I don't know how, I don't know how you do it. Is there a website so, yet for this? Uh, like other than the email, is there pricing? Is there anything like that? So this is the this is the the big part of the story. It's it's included. It's free with your Expensify account, and that also raises some questions in my head. Like, I mean, I think that's great. That's awesome. Uh, sign me up. But also how. How can you then hire the support? How can you support it? Where's right? the business model if here? If it's included. Interesting. Maybe, maybe yeah, I mean, if it's completely self-service. But I mean, I feel like the only way you could do this and make it included is if it's completely self-service and you don't have support. But that means that you've got to set it up so that I, as the accountant, can go and fix everything, like handle everything inside the app. But they're saying it's all done via concierge. If it's all done via concierge, that means there's going to be people doing this. So... So, so I mean, we'll maybe see. the target market isn't accountants and bookkeepers, and maybe it's just a small business owner that has two or three employees. They've been using Spensify to get reimbursed, and there's cutting these checks. I don't, I don't know. Oh. I, I actually, it, but also it, there's like, there's big companies using Expensify now, like huge yeah. enterprise using Expensify. So, like, are they going to be able to run? Like, who's it for? Yeah, that's a good question, David. Anyway, I want to go ask. Um, you know, we'll ask our contacts at Expensify. I would love to talk to somebody about how they built this and what the plans are for the future. Uh, and then that's the next step because now that you've done payroll is the, and you've, you already have bill pay, you have accounts payable stuff, are you going to do track track time tracking so that way you can invoice and then it's at a GL? Like what's the march? 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you trying to build an everything stack? Um, we could talk about, let's see. Um, oh, before you go on to that, I want to say oh. uh, Marissa in the chat said, um, for example, Square Payroll. Last I checked, you have to contact support to fix payroll issues versus fixing it yourself as the bookkeeper. It is very frustrating waiting on customer support when a client slash payee wants their pay. Yeah, because you're the one taking the heat for it, right? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, David. Um, Summit Hosting. So Summit Hosting is like one of the largest providers of you know QuickBooks and hosting companies. They just uh, purchased another hosting company called Tech Commando. So we're... It hasn't happened in a while, but for a while we it was very hot and hot and heavy. There was a lot of this merging of these hosting companies. Tech Commandos is really commandos? big in the. Have you ever heard of ACT? You might be too young. ACT. ACT. So ACT used to be like kind of a personal CRM, and it was big on the desktop days. Big. Um, and then Norton bought it. Like it's been it's been owned by different people over the years. ACT, and they um, there's people that are on it, and they're just on it forever. They never moved to a cloud-based CRM or anything like that. They're still using this. And so there's a whole group of people that are just stuck on that old desktop product, haven't moved their data. And so now Summit Hosting, this is an opportunity for them to add that to their stack. So they do hosting for SAP, QuickBooks, Sage, and now they're going to be ACT hosting as well, which would be interesting because like, does it mean they're going to like try to sell ACT to like QuickBooks users and like, I don't know, like, like, like it, to grow, like get people to buy other desktop stuff and I don't know. It's... But we're going to see more of these hosting companies merge. That's the only way to grow, right? You're not going to get new mm-hmm. customers. You're going to have to find just old ones and buy them. And they did not disclose the uh, the amount of the deal. Here's something that could change customer support. I was talking a lot about that in my last story. There's now AI software called Sanas, S-A-N-A-S, that has built voice AI software that can change accents in real time. And they just raised $32 million from, uh, who did they raise the money from? Google Ventures and others. That's serious money, right? Here's the website for those of us who are on the live stream. Well, quite a crazy kind of like website here. The future sounds like you. So what is the software being used for? It's being used in call centers. So if you've got a call center in India or in the Philippines, you can implement this and your non-native English speakers can have an accent where they sound like they're from Plano, Texas. Or actually the headline is the best. It says, the agent who sounds like they're from Paris, Texas, try Paris, France. Um, Yeah, so this is like one of those amazing applications of artificial intelligence that will allow, you know, global barriers to be broken. We'll see. <laughs> um, we'll see. You sound, you sound like not quite so uh, confident of this. I don't know, should I read the text I tried to send you while I was driving yesterday? Actually, I don't think it, it, it completely went through, but it was just, it didn't, the first like three words don't make any sense. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see on that. We'll see well, on that. We'll see. Uh, the app Aiden. So I don't know if you've, you probably have never heard of Aiden, but you may have possibly seen Aiden. So a lot of retail locations, if you still go to the mall, right, and you go into a Gap or an Athleta, Athleta or places like that, they kind of, a lot of the salespeople now have these little micro point of sales in their hands. Like there's no, there's no actual uh, cashiers anymore, right? 
and they just handle your point of sale payment in their hand in some sort of mobile device and it prints out the receipt, et cetera. So that company's in that space and they're kind of in the merchant payment space and, and they're fairly big. They, uh, they Just their point of sales moved uh, 49 billion euros last year and they're um, they've overall last year they did 349 euros across all their stacked or technology stack. But they are now the first company outside of Block, so Block Square, that's going to allow cash app transactions. Because right now, I can only use my cash app at Square Merchant Terminals. Now I can use it all these other um, merchants. It's funny because Aiden, I think, goes higher market a little bit, and they call them brands. And like that's that's what you call retailers now brands like these brands use us um, and that's good it's it's kind of interesting that a, a, a competing payments platform who obviously has their own piece of the action from payment processing is now letting square kind of mm. come in to that space so that is interesting well hey speaking of payments uh, I got to get to one of my top stories that I've saved for the very end which is that Visa, MasterCard, and American Express are going to start categorizing gun shop sales. This is payments. This is cloud accounting. This is you know fintech coming into the political realm of gun rights. They have been under pressure. The, the three major credit card payment networks have been under pressure from pension funds in blue states that hold large and you know, have large holdings of these companies to start categorizing gun sales uh, differently than they have been in the past. In the past, in the past, it's just been uh, general uh, merchandise. It just has fallen. General merchandise deck. is yeah. So so there's this concept of these um, merchant codes that are used by different types of stores to categorize transactions on these payment networks. So you know, um, gosh, I don't have the list of them in front of me, but there's all sorts of different kinds, right? And this is the way that the payment networks send information on sales to your bank to your credit card issuer, to payment processors, to uh, the whole financial industry of payments uses this universal system of codes. And so they've created one now specifically for gun sales. And like this was a big political thing to do because the the question is, what is going to happen now that banks and credit card issuers and payment processors have this information? Are gun stores going to be banned by certain payment processors who don't want to be associated? Are, are banks and credit card issuers going to start denying transactions that are f- coded this way? Or put transactions uh, on hold, a, right? Like, is this the backdoor right. to get a, a 90-day holding time on an automatic weapon? Like, I don't know, right? Yeah. Is it, yeah. The, the, so with this article, though, I don't think it's too far-fetched because they're already doing this um, for the online porn industry. Like, Ultimately, there's a podcast and I can share it out. It's called Hot Money. But the they kind of were trying to figure out like who runs the porn industry. And it really gets all the last three episodes really get into it's Visa and MasterCard. Visa and MasterCard determine what can be done online, what can't be done online, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And they've created a whole set of intermediaries to like collect money and then not violate. Because basically, if you collect money, you have to make sure Visa and MasterCard's brand is not hurt. So indirectly, they're basically controlling decency laws. If you want, not laws, but right. decency standards. And well, you're right, down. this is kind of the exact same thing, but for weapons or guns. Yeah, so the is question okay? is, what are they going to do? I mean, if you are a big proponent of the Second Amendment, then, you know, like imagine if, imagine if a Visa, MasterCard, and American Express 
created a code, uh, and these are called, uh, um, you know, these merchant codes. These are defined by the International Organization for Standardization, right? What if they created a code for abortion providers? I don't know if they have one now. Do they? Like, and what if they started collecting information on that? How would people feel about that? Is there a right to privacy when it comes to certain things like this in the financial system? And how do you decide what information is flagged and how? And I'm not sure what the answer is, but what I do know is that this is an accounting issue. It's a chart of accounts issue. The chart of accounts matters in in the world, right? Like, like it's actually one of the most important things when you're setting up an accounting system is defining the chart of accounts properly. Because if you don't get the information into the accounting system, categorized in the right way, you can't really do anything with it. And so this is the same thing, but in a global political sense, we're deciding on a chart of accounts, but the people don't get to decide that. It's, you know, American Express, Visa, and MasterCard get to decide that. And like, is that okay? Is that right? I don't know. I'm surprised they haven't done it or, or hasn't been there already because they have all the rules, right? And then, you know, every, the band list of what kind of businesses you can't use with QuickBurst Merchant Services or Melio had the, like, all these online payment services have these rules they have to abide by from Visa and MasterCard. So I'm surprised, right. but see, they, they, they put that, the, that onus on the payment provider. It's QuickBooks job to make sure certain industries don't use the Visa and MasterCard rails. Right, so they put that on the providers, but I'm actually surprised they haven't been tracking this already. It's kind of strange. Yeah, well, because I think because like, if you are in favor of the Second Amendment, you don't want this being tracked because what is the information going to be used for? Uh, gun rights opponents, right, or gun control advocates, I should say, have been very upfront about they want to use this information to flag suspicious purchases to try and prevent mass shootings. So that's yeah. what's going to happen with this data is it's going to be collected. And if you make a bunch of big purchases at a gun store, you might get investigated. Or they'll like sell it's the for point. marketing data and they'll sell it. That's the other reason why that you collect data is to marketing and to sell to other people. Right. Yeah. Uh, so then, then there's also the question is, will this give second life to crypto? Will this maybe be a way for crypto to like get into actual transactions, which, you know, like you said, David, you know, you're like one of the only people who actually uses crypto to pay for things. Maybe <laughs> micropayments, people, micropayments, micropayments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that crypto will be a way to get around this stuff, right? Like, but it's definitely going to, if you have clients that are, you know, gun stores, I'm sure there are, you know, firms out there that serve these businesses or there, there should be anyway, it's a good niche, right? You're going to be dealing with the same issues that cannabis companies have in terms of accepting payments. And so, you know, that's that's something to watch out for. I mean, I think they already have to deal with that. I think QuickBooks Merchant Service or QuickBooks Payments does not allow gun shops. Oh, do, but how would they know without the uh, so they, you know, merchant? So code. it's always been pushed on the merchant to know your customer. So there's there's already know mm -hmm. your customer laws that exist, and so that's what's interesting. They want to get it to the transaction level, right? Because now they know mm -hmm. what you bought. But I, I, I'm assuming Plaid could already do this because they all have databases of who the stores are. They know. I mean, again, unless it was like a Dick Sporting Goods, right? Because that's where this is going to matter, right? A Dick Sporting Goods, you might have went and bought a football, Blake. You might have bought a gun because it's not called Guns and Ammo USA or something like that, right? So that's maybe where they're getting it to the transaction level at merchants that sell lots of different goods. I don't know. Well, 
David, you got anything else? Because this we are at the be top of the hour. Fire, I think this uh, tracking of this is going to bubble up a lot. I think we're not. It's not the end of it. It could be. I want to let our listeners know about a new CPE offering from Earmark CPE. Friend of the show, comedian CPA Greg Kite has released his miniseries, Drunk Ethics. It's a four-hour CPE behavioral ethics course available on Earmark CPE, all about ethics. It is hilarious. If you've seen the show Drunk History, you probably have an idea of what this show is. Uh, They don't get drunk before they start, but Greg and his co-host Adam uh, take a shot every seven minutes as they deliver an hour of high-quality ethics CPE. And it's great. It's really good. It seems like the perfect thing for this weekend past post the 915 deadline, right? Like this might be the just the show you need this evening, relaxing, uh, pouring yourself a drink as you listen to Drunk Ethics. This is a premium course on the Earmark app. So it's an additional fee uh, because Greg put a lot of you know sweat and effort and whatever you do when you make a podcast into making this show. You had to buy I was proud to be, <laughs> you had to buy Cost booze, them. right? Um, it's really great. Um, I wanted to play a little clip for everybody so you can get an idea of you know how funny it is, but also at how educational it is. To me, it kind of reminds me of you know driver's ed, the comedy driver's ed, which I actually always learned something in comedy driver's ed where I never I learned Greg anything. Greg taught those classes before. I, I for some reason He's I feel like them. that was a conversation once. And Liz in the chat says, "Thank you, Greg, Blake, and David. This is the year I needed my ethics CPE." Here's a preview. Our whole problem as accountants yeah. is to go, okay, we're like, we I feel like I'm just oh, a hype man right now. I'm just we, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> get him, get him. What, what? So, so, okay. So, our fundamental problem, and we don't even admit it as accountants, our fundamental problem is we're absolutely not independent because our money, our paycheck paid. comes from the person that they're saying, hey, they're like going, hey, here's a bunch of money. Now, how Prima, do these... Oh, good. Oh, I was about to take number, my shot anyway. This is, <laughs> so that's a little preview. Uh, that's toward the very end of the episode. I assure you that the uh, the first 40 minutes are highly educational <laughs> in order to meet our NASPA requirement. It's, it's yeah, exactly. locked in, and then it hits but, them at minute 45. And I, I, and I interviewed um, Greg about this on a live stream. You can go find that on our LinkedIn page. And you know, I asked him, is it ethical to create a show where you drink while you teach ethics? And he said, yes, it is, because we are still meeting our requirement. We're teaching you all the material. And it's even better. It's actually more ethical because you're learning more, because it's funny. And comedy makes you remember stuff. Whereas if you just took this check-the-box ethics course where you don't learn anything and you're just going through it, you really don't think about it. And then you're not being ethical. So I like that argument. Yeah, I've been kind of thinking about CPE in general a lot lately, and I've actually started to think that podcast CPE or earmark CPE is, or on-demand CPE is probably the most valuable to the person learning in a way, or, or that you know they've learned. Because if you think about it, if you go to a conference, they, they just scan your badge and you could just fall asleep in the chair and you get CPE credit. And then if you do a webinar or online type of a CPE, you don't have to have to know any prove any knowledge. You just have to hit I'm here, I'm here, I'm here three times and you mm-hmm. get CP credit. Like you don't actually have to learn anything. But with Earmark, 
you have to take a quiz and you have to pass it, right? It's four or five questions you have to pass, which means you have to listen. So, and to some extent, when people are walking their dog, they're doing their laundry, they're they're not, they don't have five browser tabs up. They're not checking their email. They're listening to content and actually paying attention to the content. And so it's kind of a weird, like, it's not even a dilemma, but it's a weird paradigm that you would think the on-demand content would be the least useful of all the content. I'm starting to feel like it's the most useful because you actually have to listen to it, learn it, and prove that you learned it. Of all the ways to get CPE, like this is the, I'm starting to feel like this is the most uh, proof of knowledge of CPE. Maybe that's the way to, yeah. to say the word. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just showing up. It's not just inputs of time. It's actually outputs. You have to answer some questions. You have to prove your knowledge. Yeah. So uh, here's to making CPE better. Here's to drunk ethics. Uh, here is to Earmark CPE. If you haven't downloaded the app, go download Earmark CPE on the Apple App Store or the Android Store. You can earn free CPE credit for listening to the Cloud Accounting Podcast every week. For this so right here, in a couple days, this, you just take the quiz. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if you watch the live stream or if you're listening to the podcast episode, download the app, and then the course usually comes out a week after the episode because we got to go do the work to write the questions and uh, put it all together. And then you've already listened, right? So you can just go mark your completion and take the quiz and get your CPE certificate. So, you know, we do one of these every week. You could earn 52 CPE credits per year just for listening to our show. Hit your whole requirement. Although some states have limited the amount of CPE you can earn from non- From the Cloud Accounting Podcast specifically, they're passing legislation. (laughs) 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 That... That is a life goal. Of when mine. that happens, we've made it. We, when Visa and Mastercard want to track the spending on yeah. cloud accounting podcast courses, we know, you know, that's the way well, we've made it. And David, um, you posted something about our listenership that was really exciting this week. What happened? Yeah, so we are now. Argue, I'm ready to put the flag in the ground. We are officially the number one accounting, bookkeeping, and tax podcast in the world. We are ahead of um, what do you call it? Bloomberg Tax. In the Apple Bloomberg Talking Tax, Talking Taxes podcast, in the um, Apple uh, podcast ratings, globally we're ahead. They're not even show, they don't even show up on some of the global charts on some of the regions. Like we're officially we're number nineteen, they're number twenty right now, and it's like we've been right neck and neck. We'll see what happens next week, week after, but we're right there for business news podcast. Um, thank you all the listeners. This is uh, amazing. Um, Blake's actually yeah, pointed up. You. Did we move? Okay, now we're twenty one. They're twenty two. So. Yeah, so hey, we did it. We're we still officially, ahead. officially the number one accounting, bookkeeping, and tax. So I'm going to be updating our websites and all our other stuff. We got to change our, our description a little bit. So <laughs> That's um, amazing. Oh, Chris, there's a crypto podcast ahead of us that Bloomberg does as well. But, you know, we're in good Well, it's company, all the big boys. Right? It's all the big money up there. If you look at who's above us. Yahoo Finance. We're, we're right behind Yahoo Street. Finance Daily, uh, Bloomberg Crypto, ESG Insider. That's funny. Uh, above the law, thinking like a lawyer, Bloomberg Law. Then there's, then you get up to like Wall Street. Wall Journal, Street Journal, yeah. It's it's, it's 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 the big money guys. But yeah. hey, for an awesome indie level. podcast, we're doing pretty good. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to everyone on the live stream. Thank you to everyone who's made this happen to make my dream come true, so that I get to be a podcaster and talk about accounting. It's so much fun. We have a long way to go, Blake, because I remember when we started this. I said, I'm in it to win it. And like we're only like at 19. We got 19 spots to keep going up. 
We'll be bigger than the Wall Street Daily podcast, whatever that thing's called, the, well, the Daily Brief. We'll be back next week and streaming again, David. I think we should keep doing this. It's a lot of fun I having you all in the week, chat. I think next week, yes. The week after that, maybe not, because I think we're at a conference. We're going, going to be Sweet at, World. Uh, Sweet World. Yep. And then two and weeks after week, that, I think we're going I'm, to Sage Transform. And then you're going to a conference next week. These are busy. So weeks next week, week, yeah, next week or the same week this episode drops, I will be at the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy Summit in Nashville, learning all about what's happening with CPE. So I'll, uh, I'll be reporting from there. If anything interesting happens, look for me to uh, live stream. David, I'll, I'll send you some uh, memos from, from Nashville. I'm excited to hear. All right. Cool. I'm ready to get Thanks, out of this hot, hot sweat box of a studio I have. So. See you next week. All right. Time for the classifieds. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Blake, and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud, and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.